This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold-resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 86 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Harrison Fugman, the co-founder and CEO of The Naked Market. The Naked Market is a next-generation food and beverage business that is creating a portfolio of better-for-you snack brands and building them each from the ground up. In this episode, Harrison shares with us his journey from growing up in Vancouver, struggling in school, to starting an event production business in college, to working for Credit Suisse for seven years, where he spent extensive time with food and beverage startups, which inspired him to start The Naked Market. He talks with us about how he builds new brands in just eight weeks, measures their success in the first three months, and what food categories he thinks are booming right now. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Harrison, thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building the naked market. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for for having me. So uh, where are you from originally? Tell me about your childhood. Yeah, so I'm from Vancouver, Canada, born and raised. Uh, so from the early days through high school, that's where I spent my time. And then went to school at McGill University in uh, in Montreal. And following graduation from McGill, uh, moved to New York uh, and embarked on my career in finance and spent uh, all working in finance from New York to Hong Kong and uh, in San Francisco, and then in San Francisco is when I I left my career in finance and and started the Naked Market. Well, that's a very quick version of how you got to where you are. Let's go back a little bit more. So, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a kid, what kind of kid were you? I was definitely wild card. I did not thrive in the typical environment, so really, really struggled with school. You know, I was one that was always you know getting in, in some form of trouble or 
academic probation or something along those lines. Tell us, what did you do? Nothing. I just, I sitting still in one place, uh, something I always struggled with. Like undiagnosed ADD or? Yeah, potentially. potentially. <laughs> I'm there with you. I'm there with you. <laughs> I had the same problem. It was painful. I think I got my first C in third grade in comprehension because I couldn't sit still to like read and, and comprehend it. I was so distracted and I was like, it couldn't, it was so boring to me to sit there and just read and try to answer questions about what I just read. And I was like, there's so much more fun things to do. Standardized testing, you fill in all the bubbles and, you know, God, that's such a boring test. I just started making designs with the bubbles and like, you know, it's, uh, it's tough to be in, in, chains with with, without a doubt uh a lot of c's mostly c's you know in in that realm up through 10th ish grade is when i i figured out how to start taking tests and managed to turn it around enough to to get into a a school that that i really enjoyed but it was a slog yeah so why finance i mean if you had if you couldn't pay attention very well in school how the hell did finance like become a thing isn't that like that's like sitting at your desk all day long I guess to to take it back a bit, growing up, entrepreneurship in my blood, you know, in high school, while I was struggling in the classroom, I was always finding ways to, to you know, have fun and, and run little side ventures uh, outside of the classroom and importing goods from China uh, and selling them to my classmates or from other countries uh, or other places to you know throwing events and and things along uh, along that nature and and that parlayed into running a business in college where which i ran it was an event production business which i ran with with one of the co-founders from the naked market and to go back to your question on how did i get to into finance after i graduated school i knew you know i wanted to live in a major metropolitan city and, uh, you know, given my network was, was very Canadian and Vancouver focused, I knew I wanted a, to, to have a job that enabled me to meet really interesting, smart people. Uh, and I had one mentor from, who's from Vancouver and, and who had a very successful career in finance. And he guided me towards, towards salesman trading in New York and, he was really the one person I knew who had gone that path. And uh, I blindly listened to him, which I, I think was uh, looking back on it, a, a great, a, a, a great decision. And that set my path for, for New York and, and the years ahead. That's awesome. So talk to us about what, what it was like. You were there in New York, you're in the big city meeting all these interesting people, but you're working in finance. So how, how is that? How did it pan out? Yeah, so it started. I had a, a internship in in third year, and I was on exchange. And I met a guy on exchange who told me he had a job at a big consulting firm. And, he, and I was like, "How'd you get a job?" He's like, "I studied like crazy for these interviews." So I studied like crazy for the finance interviews. Had one, was fortunate enough to get it, uh, and uh, and took took a a summer internship with Credit Suisse. And that was the hardest I'd worked in my entire life to get that job. Never put my heart and soul into something like I did that internship. What do you mean? So what'd you have to do? What studying did you have to do for this interview? 
So for there's the interview and then there's the internship. For the interview, and I think this really stands true to most really structured uh, corporate jobs out there. Is there's a bunch of guides out there that really lay out the types of questions that are asked in the interview process. Oh, right. Like an Amazon interview, right? It's like all this online information. Yeah. And so just studying and memorizing the questions that they would ask and having a lot of pre-rehearsed answers. That path fortunately worked. And then I luckily had one interviewer that I really connected with and, and a gentleman named Steve Taylor. And he really helped me navigate through the rest of, of the interview process. Because with finance interviews, there's several steps. So you got the job and you're like, I'm here. So how'd it go? It went well enough that you know, I was fortunate to get a full-time offer. And the mindset there was like really just uh, I, I went into it with a big chip on my shoulder and it was really like be the first one in and, and last one out. And and it was, you know, in it before 5 a.m. and and out at a at a late hour and and cross every T, dot every I, uh, and network like crazy and and met met some great, great folks there that that became long-term mentors of mine. And and set the the landscape for for the years ahead. What were some key takeaways that you had from that experience that has helped you in building the brands that you have in your portfolio? I guess the key experience from from interning was was just grinding and and knowing that if if you are working day and night, ultimately good things can can come of that. But I think more interestingly, what's most What's most relevant from what I learned in my career in finance to starting the naked market, one of the things that really comes to mind uh, is really how to have uh, how to have a good meeting. And whether that meeting is with a retailer locking down a big retail account, whether that meeting is uh, is with an, an investor around raising capital, the, the finance world and particularly the roles I had within it. Uh, I had a lot of meetings and it prepped me very well for, for operating the, the, the business here. That's one of the things. Yeah. And so how did you go from, you know, that job that you had in finance to starting the naked market? What was the inspiration? Yeah. So I, I knew that I wanted to, you know, when I jumped over to finance, I knew ultimately I'd end up starting a business at some point. But there was a lot of things I wanted to do between the joining finance and, and, and jumping back into the entrepreneurial world. And I want, you know, one of those things was seeing the world and, and so leveraged the the bank I was working with to, you know, to live in, in great places like Hong Kong and then uh, come back to San Francisco and in between all that travel to 50 plus different different countries and all, you know, throughout that time in the back of my head, it's it's let's find something that I'm incredibly passionate about. Uh, that's a great business opportunity and do it with amazing people. And, you know, I looked at opportunities in Vietnam and other places in Southeast Asia and other frontier markets to uh, more traditional uh, opportunities back home and, and ultimately ended up starting the naked market, which is a product of the time that the last job I had with, with Credit Suisse, which is running their venture capital coverage business in, in San Francisco. It was my time in that role, which was the impetus behind, behind starting the naked market. And so the naked market, I mean, you guys have, how many brands do you have now? 
since we started the naked market, we've launched five brands, uh, and then we'll launch another five brands over over 2022. Oh, wow. And so what brand did you start with and why? The first brand we launched uh, was a brand called Beach House Bowls. Uh, it was a ready-to-eat acai smoothie bowl. And we, you know, our R&D process, we had quite a few things working in, in development. And Beach House Bowls ended up coming up first of a combination of uh, our conviction in the idea, which proved to, to be ultimately very wrong because we shut it down just a couple of months after launch. Uh, and, you know, where it sat from a timeline perspective of, of it being ready to go before some of the other brands that we were also excited about. What made you want to shut it down? With our business model, we're very focused on, you know, we, our business is primarily online, uh, where we get a lot of amazing data that, that gives us great uh, indication of the, the long-term success of a brand. Uh, and so there are a lot of metrics that we pay very close attention to. And uh, a lot of the metrics that we care about, uh, beach on pools, really just didn't hit our 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 benchmark targets. And we have a, a fail fast approach to launching brands. And even if we have a lot of conviction behind something, if customers tell us that they don't want it, then we shut it down and move on to the next one. That's interesting. And so, why did you decide to create a company that would have a bunch of different brands under it? I mean, it's hard enough to start one brand, right, and and focus on that and build that up, but what was the real the the concept here with having multiple brands under one umbrella? Yeah, there's there's a few different components to it. It's it's one is is just the aspirations of of the founding team, which is to build the next big food and beverage conglomerate and not build the next big brand. Uh, the the second is there's a lot of benefits and synergies towards towards operating multiple brands. Uh, and so a lot of the key learnings and relationships and expertise that you gain from operating one brand, you can apply to, to many brands. Uh, and then the third point was, you know, we, you know, as we diligence the food and beverage sector, one of our key learnings was uh, when you launch a successful, when you launch a brand, the early data set can be very predictive of, of the medium to long-term success or, or lack thereof of a brand. Uh, and as such, we wanted to set up the the infrastructure and expertise where we could launch multiple brands and identify those winners and scale them to become household names. And on, and on the, the flip side, when we launch brands and the data doesn't hit, just shut them down and move on and bring more of a, you know, we love food and beverage, we love health and wellness, but bring more of a formulaic that data-driven approach to it. And so what are the indicators or KPIs, that the signals that tell you whether or not to stay or leave with a brand? Yeah. And when you look at it, you know, you can bucket it online, you can bucket it offline. Online is, is a big focus for us. And, uh, and you really need to monitor the entire customer funnel and, and journey and every touch point that a consumer has with the brand and, and everything from the click-through rates of, of the ads they see to the conversion rates of, of how many, ever many people that come to your website, how many ultimately buy, and then very importantly, post-purchase, what, uh, what does the, the customer retention look like? And if you can, you can convince someone to buy something with a bunch of artificial promises, but if, it, if you don't ultimately sell them something they love and want to keep buying and buying again, then ultimately there's not going to be a lot of terminal value behind the brands you create. So post-purchase, making sure that uh, you're really attractive 
you know, net promoter scores and repurchase rates and, uh, and, and broader overall feedback. So it sounds like you kind of view building a brand as a real science where you're tracking all the data and you're really trying to focus on, you know, figuring out what are these early indicators of the brand, which will determine the long-term success. Exactly. Nailed it. What about the art side? You know, a lot of founders start, they spend a lot of time and money on product development and probably don't do a lot of this testing that you do really early on. How do you think about that in terms of like, creating a really great product versus maybe testing things um, online, click-through rates and stuff to kind of vet the concept. Yeah. So it all starts with a great product, right? And and so when you come with the, like from an ideation perspective, uh, obviously we leverage a lot of data to determine the opportunities and categories and products that we ultimately create and, and go after. Uh, but there is an art component as to how, you know, the actual final version of what gets put in, in a customer's hand. And, and once what we then are very rigorous about measuring is what is the cost of getting it into the customer's hand? And then once it's in the customer's hand, what do they think about it? Because what ultimately, no matter how much passion we have behind the brand, if they can get it into customer's hands because it's too expensive, or B, once we get in a customer's hands, they hate it, uh, we're not going to be able to build a really impactful brand. So there's a lot of that art that goes into art plus plus data, which goes into product creation. But once we're in market, we uh, we really do live and die by the numbers. Right, right. That's interesting. And so you have five brands now. You're going to launch another five just next year. That's a lot of brands to launch in one year. Are they all kind of going at the same pace? Like, how do you organize this? Like, what's the process? Are you like, Q1, we do XYZ, Q2, we're going to do... Like, how do you structure it? We don't launch brands at the same time. They they follow a, you know, pre-set out uh, timeline, which obviously is always going to get updated depending on how quick or slow things are, are moving, which gets very unpredictable in today's day and age with the global supply chain issues that... Uh, that occur, but uh, we have a, our incubation team that uh, that is responsible for the actual launching of the brands and uh, taking one brand to market at a time. Well, a developing the brand, b then bringing it to market, uh, gathering that uh, that data before ultimately deciding if if we continue to to scale it through our stage gating process or if if we shut it down. And how long does that take to determine? Yeah, we create brands. Quickest brand we've ever created from start to finish is probably eight weeks. But we're, you know, we think about brand creation in months uh, versus years. Uh, so it speed does matter, number one. And then in market, we we get a pretty good feel in the very, very early months. So like the first three months, six months? Yeah, the first three months we'll have a very, very good feel. And we follow a stage getting process that looks at brands after you know the first two weeks of performance, the first six weeks of performance, the first three months of performance, uh, and then there's certain steps at each uh, throughout each process where we make the decision either pull the ripcord or keep going. So some get earlier than others. Interesting. I'm so curious what that threshold is, right across the brands. What is the threshold? So there's a, a bunch of data that's aggregated for each brand. And then we look at each brand through a, a, like a lens in a specific timeline. And if it beats our target metrics, it, we keep going. And if we don't beat our target metrics, it gets shut down. But how did you determine your target metrics? 
a lot of uh, diligence in in the sector, which we are fortunate to to bring to the table through the team that we that we started the, the naked market with and a lot of the, the experience that we've had. And so how big is your team? So right now the uh, the full-time team is around 12. We have a, a small but mighty team and everyone wears a bunch of different hats, uh, bears a ton of responsibility, but it really speaks to the impact that once you've developed a specific expertise in an area of consumer products, how it can really be leveraged, but, you know, from brand to brand, you know, so what that means is like performing best in class performance marketing techniques across brands, performing best in class retail sales techniques and relationships across brands, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. Yes. And so it's kind of expensive to be cranking out all these brands. Have you guys raised any venture capital? We initially had a, a six million dollar seed round, which facilitated, you know, the initial embarkment of our journey, and then recently closed our uh, our Series A. Nice, congrats! How was that round? Tell me about fundraising. You know, for us, we, you know, we were very fortunate where we had some long term, like our, where we launched a business, we had a, a had a very specific game plan, strategy, and approach. We went after that. In the early days, we saw good product market fit around what we were doing. And so when we ultimately came up for air a year and a half, two years in to go and raise our Series A and accelerate what we were doing, because we had delivered on what we'd set out to do you know, in, in the year or two before, our existing partners and investors were very happy to uh, to continue the partnership process. So our Series A was led by a, a day one investor of ours, you know, which which was a, a really fortunate position for us to be in. Interesting. And so these are brands that are all in-house. So it's not like you're kind of in an incubator where you're, you know, going to bring in kind of a, a founding team and have them run with it. This is all in-house and you're going to just hire from within and, and keep them rolling out. Correct. Nailed it. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because everybody knows what a conglomerate is, but we only know them as the ones that have been around for a really long time that have lots of brands, right? And they're fully established. So it's kind of fun to talk to a startup conglomerate that's like at a, it's, it's unique. I haven't really, you know, I think there's a lot of accelerators and these incubators that are trying to crank out brands and hire founding teams and CEOs to go and run them. I think that's a really challenging thing to do. But yeah, I like this. Um, this is a very interesting model you have going on. Um, are you going to plan to acquire businesses as well? We'll opportunistically acquire. We we have not done so heretofore. But if we see a brand that will integrate very well into the ecosystem that we have built, then we definitely will, will be uh, opportunistic acquirers. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. 
Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. What are some of the um, technology challenges you've faced in kind of your experience in building these brands? I'll probably flip it on its head a bit and, and speak to how, on the positive side, just how impressed we are with the Shopify ecosystem and, and not one just Shopify and the power building on direct Shopify, but the, the ecosystem of, of apps that have been built around it and how it makes running an e-com business so much lower lift than it was five to 10 years ago. And you can, you know, build a big, a, a real e-com business at scale with a super so- small team and not a lot of technical, not a lot of technical expertise. And so as we think about, you know, the pain points of our business, uh, like tech isn't at, like tech bottlenecks isn't necessarily at, uh, at the forefront of that, we've been very fortunate where, you know, food and beverage historically had much lower e-com penetration than other retail channels. Uh, but that's really changed in the last 12 to 18 months when penetration went from low single digits to now in the in the low double digit range. Uh, and so there's been a, a combination of natural tailwind of consumer purchasing behavior with e-com ecosystem that is you know, supportive enough for to sell a bunch of snacks uh, around it with without massive uh, massive dev teams. I mean, it's pretty incredible what's possible now versus even just like six or seven years ago. 
And so when you think about developing a brand, how does that happen? You know, I, I've I actually heard about you guys through our uh, marketing manager here at Stairway to CEO. She was bragging about this amazing popcorn brand, Rob's Backstage Popcorn. She's like, she loved it. She was telling me about it. She's like, this is such good popcorn. And evidently it's the Jonas Brothers favorite popcorn too. How did this brand kind of come to life? Yeah. So all of our brands follow a, a pretty similar frit, like a pretty similar recipe for disruption, which is you find a big area, a big category, sorry, that's owned by stale incumbents, and you create a new age brand that goes after a clear market leader with a, a, a nutritional uh, or taste offering to a consumer uh, where you can really differentiate your product versus versus what's in, in market. When it comes specifically to, to Rob, this was our first ever Rob's Backstage Popcorn. This is our first ever celebrity joint venture. And this is a brand that we, you know, we, as mentioned, created with, with the Jonas Brothers. They've been eating uh, this, this popcorn uh, backstage since uh, 2011. And they came to us ahead of their Remember This Tour and, and asked us to, uh, to turn it into a, a, a brand and consumer product that, uh, that all of their fans and, and others could enjoy. And for us, we, after they approached us with it, you know, it was a combination of this really authentic brand story the actual you know, seasoning was made by uh, their guitarist father, who was Rob. You know, then they've been eating it for so many years. So we love the story. Then we tasted the popcorn. And as your marketing manager can attest, it's such an unbelievably unique flavor. It tastes so good. And it's got a really strong, you know, beyond the taste, the nutritional profile for a, a product that's salty and sweet uh, is, uh, is really ahead of where, where the competitive landscape is. And then we looked at the category dynamics and they were, they were really attractive. Uh, you haven't seen much innovation in popcorn and in a chunk of years, those three factors overlaid with, you know, the brothers and, and the passion that they had for it and the way that their voice and reach can really amplify a brand created the, a great recipe for, for us to launch Rob's backstage. You know, you guys are launching so many brands. How do you think about partnerships or collaborations? Or, you know, you guys are kind of, you're either doing things in-house from a like branding and marketing perspective, or are you outsourcing and you have partners or even just manufacturing? How do you think about all the different elements in creating a brand? Yeah. So generally speaking, you know, most of what we do is in-house. So like from the marketing, branding, scaling, operating side, manufacturing is the key exception to that. Uh, where we have a lot of manufacturing partners, but with most of those partners, they're uh, a bit of a hybrid partnership. Uh, so it's not a fully hands-off thing where, uh, you know, it's standard typical co-manufacturing relationship. We, we make sure to take things a layer deeper in, in our relationships and operational support. And that's where we sit across end-to-end spectrum of creating and operating brands. You've been working on the naked market for the past, what, two years or so? Yeah, so we officially launched at the end of 2019. Our initial approach, we were going to be much more omnichannel in nature. And because of the circumstances of 2020, it really forced our hand to be an e-com first company. And there was luckily the tailwind of food and beverage online consumption 
you know, really, really growing at that time. Uh, and now that's become the backbone of how we launch brands and, and generate the, 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 like the, the decision-making to determine what continues versus what stops. And what are some of the key elements that you guys really leverage with your go-to-market strategy? Are you guys doing influencer marketing or, you know, what are some of the key things? Uh, what's the recipe for your go-to-market? Yeah, we, we keep things pretty clean, combination of both earned and, and paid media. We have a big focus on the paid side. And for us, it's important that we launch each brand in as similar a manner as possible where the data behind those brands can be compared as much of an apples to apples basis as possible. Right. So it's like A-B testing constantly, right? Against all the brands. Yeah, exactly. So what's in store? Can you talk about the brands coming up and when the next one's going to launch? We can't get into too much detail, but we've got a couple other big celebrity partnerships hitting one before the end of the year and and one in Q1. Uh, we've got an exciting uh, line of candy products, better for you candy products that are coming to market uh, next year and a really cool plant-based snack that that we're really excited about. What other categories do you view as ripe for disruption? I talk with uh, with action on this, right? So we like candy. Uh, we think that that there's there's been some great uh, better for you candy brands that have been built, uh, and we think uh, several more will will follow. The the plant based movement as as well as is very real and focusing on better for you plant based snacking with very clean labels is is something that uh, that we see a lot of uh, a lot of potential in. But I, a big other reason of why we've chosen this portfolio approach to manage multiple brands is just the widespread opportunity we see across the shelves of grocery stores and a lot of like the non-sexy thing categories that people overlook and whether that's, you know, sauces and dressings is, is, is another great, great example. So there's no shortage of categories that, that get us really, really excited. Nice. And so what have you learned the hard way? Can you tell us about a time when you learned a uh, hard lesson? Yeah. What are some hard lessons that we've learned? Like nothing is perfect. Everything gets broken at some point and just perennially needs to be put back together. Consistently overwhelmed by the amount of fires that perennially pop up. What's a really big fire that happened that you were really afraid of? Like it almost burnt down the house. Bag issues leading to almost missed deadlines has been big. So you get like your final packaging and the final packaging isn't what you wanted it to be. And and so ultimately you then get put in an area where, you know, if you thought you thought you had a few weeks of leeway, but you need know, to reorder and rush everything. And, and it comes down to can you get things in time? And we've been, you know, fortunate in, in the one or two cases that happened where, where it's worked out, but that that's one that we that we dealt with earlier this year, and and lucky lucky to, to to get through it. And in your kind of work experience, whether it's been you know as a leader in your current role or even in your your last job, what's the hardest feedback you've ever gotten? One of 
team members, newer team member was there. They recently joined the team and very, like very talented, very smart. And they, I don't know, a month or two in, they, they just kind of went for a walk. They looked at me and they're like, so what are like the company's goals? And it was, it, it was a big, like, oh no, moment of, of realizing, even though we thought we had such clear communication, we clearly communicated exactly what we wanted the company to do and where we wanted the company to go. It, it very, it clearly wasn't uh, felt throughout the organization and we weren't doing a good job at communicating, you know, why we're doing what we're doing and what we're going after. And so that's a piece of feedback that definitely jumps out. And we've been very proactive, you know, since then to make sure that we are, we're being super, super proactive of, of you know, communicating exactly what, what we want to accomplish and why we want to accomplish it. So that's a piece of feedback that obviously you never want to hear, uh, but I, I'm quite happy with how the, uh, the management team is really, the management team is really work done changing that moving forward. So what do you think uh, some people don't know about building a business? The big thing is to me is the ups and downs. And I, I think people hear it a lot. They hear it all the time. I feel like on the show, they're like, oh, everybody on the show is like, it's hard. And the people listening are like, what are you talking about? Your day can start as the best day of your life at eight in the morning at 11 a.m. You get an email with an unexpected twist and turn that like that you just never saw, which put you at such a low to only three hours later have it get fixed and be back to normal. Like the, the, the emotional roller coaster is, is unbelievable. It's undescribable. That's the, the, the biggest thing for me. And you know, particularly at a time, like we've been so fortunate with how a lot of our brands had been the, the reception to it by customers and the way the last two plus years have gone. But I still can't believe even as, even though things have gone as good as they could have, like from where we are today, how just the roller coaster and just the punches in the face that we consistently take. Yeah. It's like tying a rag doll to the back of a pickup truck and driving like from zero to 60 on a, on a rocky road. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. And you're the rag doll. <laughs> um, so what are some limiting beliefs you've had to overcome to get to where you are? Like through the whole journey, what are some things that you've had to overcome? Getting comfortable being uncomfortable. It's, it's just a, a mindset that, that I really needed to accept, you know, especially coming from a very controlled environment in finance where the list of outcomes can be, you know, pretty easily fit into a box, knowing that you're going to need to expect the unexpected, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And when things don't go your way, rather than harp on them, find a way to fix them. Yep. Creative problem solving all day, every day. What kind of characteristics do you think make up a strong entrepreneur? There's so many different types, just so many successful people out there and, and, and with so many different types of ventures and so many different character sets. But I guess in the ethos of what we've been talking about, I would say persistence, grit, hard work would, would have to be the first ones that 
that come to mind. What would you have done differently? I probably would have started the business three years earlier. So you would have left your job sooner? Yeah. That's interesting. I think a lot of people are holding on to their jobs because they don't think they're, they have enough knowledge yet. They, they don't feel ready yet. They're like, maybe think they already have something to learn before they jump off and do their own thing. Is that how you felt? Is that why you stayed for an extra three years? I was scared of the unknown. I was scared that I wasn't a, like a, a soft. I in my job, I worked with all these successful entrepreneurs, scared I couldn't go and, and, and follow in their footsteps. Uh, you, when you work in finance, you have you know, good visibility on what the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months look like when you start a new venture. You know, you don't have good visibility on the next 90 days, particularly as you're setting it up. And it's, it's a really a rip the bandaid off moment. And if, if my general view is if you've been thinking about it for a, a significant enough period of time, then you just got to make like dive into it and make the leap of faith. And what's a significant amount of time? Like a year or two years? Uh, to me, it would probably, if you were probably thinking about something for six months or half a year, that you probably your heart's in, in the right place. Right. If you just can't get it out of your head. Yeah. Is that what happened to you? It's not because you had a bad week, right? It's not, you don't start a business because you had a bad week because some, you know, a promotion didn't go your way. If it's on your mind, you know, week after week, month after month, uh, and you're not getting fulfillment around what you're doing, then either joining something new or starting something new, I think is a really fun uh, fun experience. There's so many, I know it definitely doesn't need to be starting something. There's so many cool, cool businesses and there's super early stages where, you know, you can pair wild amounts of responsibility and, and drive meaningful, meaningful impact that, yeah, I wish I, I wish I did that earlier. So how did you overcome that fear of the unknown? My co-founder, Tim, you know, he really, really convinced me into it and there was a lot of pushing and it took a lot of time really how did he push you what was he saying to you he just he really put all the pieces in place and i really trust him and respect him and if it wasn't for him and just the consistent back and forth conversations and the energy and resources that he put into the business it would have been yeah just it, it never would have happened i got very lucky without tim i never would have quit my job Wow, that's uh, go Tim. Yeah. Go Maybe Tim. we all need a Tim in our life. Yeah. Well, cool. I think we're going to wrap on that because that's a positive note. Um, and what advice, what kind of final advice do you have, I guess, for other entrepreneurs thinking of taking the leap? Just do it. Just go do it. Thinking about it. Pull the ripcord. Uh, life short. Grand scheme of things, nothing even really matters. So uh, optimize for impact, happiness, and, and stop making excuses. Nice. I like it. Stop making excuses. All right, Harrison. Thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.